and welcome to episode 1209 of Effectively Wild, the Fangraphs Baseball Podcast, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan, not of The Ringer. I'm joined, as always, by Ben Lindbergh, kind of of Fangraphs, but actually of The Ringer. And uh, all the guests that I attempted to, to get booked for this podcast are either unavailable or didn't respond. So we're going to have a nice, <laughs> loose grab bag of a baseball podcast this Friday. Hey, Ben, how's, uh, how's the baseball world? Hi. I don't know. I, I know how my world is. My world's okay. Baseball world, presumably okay, too. We'll talk about it, and uh, hopefully we'll get to some of those guests next week. We're flexible around here. So... I do have a couple things to follow up on from yesterday's episode. I, I guess we could start there. We did an email show earlier this week, and just uh, two points to clarify. One thing is part of your stat blast talked about the idea that foul outs are up this year. We're, we're leading with the really sexy stuff here on this episode. <laughs> foul outs are up this season, and uh, we didn't in the moment come up with a reason why that would be the case, but Matt Trueblood, listener and baseball prospectus writer wrote in to point out that this might have something to do with the fact that all pop-ups are up right and foul outs are presumably all or almost all pop-ups and so if there are more pop-ups there will presumably be more foul outs as well so that's probably why i guess that leads to the question of why there are more pop-ups which uh could be something having to do with hitters and launch angles and trying to hit fly balls or maybe pitchers trying to counter somehow i don't know yeah, so uh, this is something that early in the season I observed that ground ball rate was way down, and I thought, wow, look at how meaningful this already is. And <laughs> since then, it's been completely normal. Ground ball rate is <laughs> it's only slightly lower than where it used to be, but the pop-up rate is, in fact, inflated. Now, this is something that I always have a little bit of trouble looking at these numbers year to year because these are there's no like real strict definition of what a pop-up is. There is, like there's a cutoff. I forgot if it's like 100 40 feet or 160 feet maybe you remember but i do not <laughs> all these numbers come from baseball info solutions and mm-hmm. basically the only reason i've ever had to look up what the definition of a pop-up is is when i'm writing about joey vada not hitting pop-ups so right. you know that that comes up every year or two yeah or freddie but, freeman now not doing or freddie freeman or yeah. howie kendrick he's the one that no one ever talks about but anyway yeah. and john jay as well john jay miraculous babip hitter but uh-huh. so this year Assuming that nothing has changed about pop-up definitions, and I don't know why it would, but just to understand there's some subjectivity here, over the past five years, ground ball rate has gone from 44.8% to 43.5%. Launch angle revolution, <laughs> indeed. But the pop-up rate, now again, these are these are small differences, but the, the way this is measured is pop-ups as a rate per fly ball. So you, mm-hmm. you've probably heard of home runs per fly ball as a rate set on Fangraphs. This is pop-ups, infield flies per fly ball. So starting in 2014, it was 9.6%, 9.5%, 9.7%, 9.6%, and this year, 11.1%. That mm-hmm. is a difference of only 1.5 percentage points, but that's also a difference of basically 15%, a little more, as an increase. Mm-hmm. So pop-ups are indeed up, and you you think about why this would be. And I don't think that coming up with an initial theory is very hard. You've got batters who were trying to hit the ball in the air more. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got batters who might not be skilled enough to consistently hit the ball well in the air. And you have pitchers who are trying to counter that by pitching up in the zone. I think you hear this increasingly on different broadcasts that you open. Every announcer, like even old school team announcers now are talking about the launch angle trend and pitchers using four-seam fastballs up in the zone. Like the secret is out. The secret's been out. For years and re- yeah, once re- you hear something on a broadcast, the secret has has been <laughs> circulating for some time already. 
yeah, so pop-ups uh, are up so far, and if you just want to look at, I don't know, what's happened over the past week, just to, since it's still so early in the season, you can just kind of monitor how these things are moving, and over the course of the past week, the pop-up rate is loading. Pop-up <laughs> rate is, yeah, still up. So, I don't know, this could be, we're still so early in what's been a, a weird start to the season that I want to give, you. I mean, look. These numbers are going to have time to settle down no matter what we feel like. Mm -hmm. But I want to just give the numbers more time before I make too much of them. But it does look like pop-ups are up. And so long story short, this was a long answer, actually not a short <laughs> story, of responding to, yes, Matthew Trueblood is right. <laughs> all right. Well, we're just front-loading all the exciting stuff in this episode. Pop-ups are up. Foul-outs <laughs> are up. Now we know. The other exciting thing that I wanted to follow up on from yesterday, we answered an email which was about home run rates and triple rates. And uh -huh. the question was when home runs caught up to triples because for much of early baseball history, triples were more common than home runs. And so I thought the question, which was sent in by Nathan, I thought it was asking what year there were more home runs hit than triples hit for like the last time when that became a permanent state of affairs or at least permanent thus far. Who knows what will happen in the future? And so I determined that that was 1931. That's when the home run rate passed the triple rate for good as far as we know. That is hopefully an answer to an interesting question, but not the interesting question that Nathan was attempting to ask. So he wanted to know when the total number of home runs hit in Major League history caught up to the total number of triples hit in Major League history. Oh, so, no. Yes, so that's a, a more labor-intensive question and answer. And so by misinterpreting it, I saved myself some work because <laughs> Nathan did the research himself. <laughs> so thank you, Nathan. And uh, there are a couple different ways you can answer this question. And there is a, another listener in the Facebook group who realized that I had misinterpreted what Nathan was asking. That is Michael. And so he did the research himself separately. So two people trying to come to this answer of when the home run was hit that put home runs ahead of triples all time and they arrived at two different answers but for good reason it's because they defined major leagues differently so nathan looked at just the national league and the american league and michael looked at all major leagues, which includes things like the American Association and the Federal League, which I think based on what we know now, probably weren't major league caliber and so maybe should be excluded from these things, but historically haven't been. Anyway, you get two somewhat similar answers when you do this, when you look it up those two different ways. So Nathan's way, looking at just the American League and the National League, he determined through looking at many splits pages on Baseball Reference and then doing subsequent research to see like what time games were played on certain days, he determined that probably the home run that tied home runs with triples all time was hit by Minnie Minoso on September 8th, 1961, and the home run that put home runs ahead of triples for good was hit September 9th, 1961. It was Don Demeter of the Phillies who hit that home run. The other answer that Michael determined, counting all of those leagues as major leagues, was 1964, August 29th, 1964. Norm Cash probably 
or possibly Joe Pepitone, but one of those was the one who did it. So now we have all possible answers to this question, three different answers to this question. I think they're all interesting in their own way. And now we know. Do we? Because this <laughs> feels like this is something I'm going to forget the answers to by the end of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you may have forgotten already. I wouldn't blame you. But uh, just early 60s, that is when it happens. So that tells you something. So I determined that 1931 is when home runs started to be hit more than triples for good. So it then took another three decades for home runs to catch up to the number of triples. Triples had built up a big lead over the first several decades of baseball history. So early 60s, that is when home runs passed triples all time. I don't know. Now we know. So we can set that to rest and and move on to other topics, such as perhaps Ronald Acuna, who we were talking about on our previous episode in real time as he was making his Major League debut. He did end up getting a single in that game, and we were talking about how it is nice for a prospect to come up and face the Reds pitching staff immediately. Didn't really pay off for him in that first game. He went one for five, I believe. But then the second game... Things turned around and he looked like the Ronald Acuna that we've all been salivating over for some time now, courtesy of Homer Bailey, I suppose. But Ronald Acuna nearly hit for the cycle. He went three for four. He hit a home run. It was a long home run. And uh, it took all of two games, I guess, for us to see him show why we were all excited about seeing him. See, now I'm just scrolling up and down because I, you had mentioned Norm Cash is maybe hitting that home run. And now yep. I remember that we talked about him recently on a podcast and I can't yes, for the life of me remember all why. connected. <laughs> but it's in here somewhere. I don't know what it was, but I'm going to have to relearn exactly what it was we were talking about with Norm Cash. But anyway, with Ronald Lacuni, as you mentioned, sort of the opposite of the Eric Lauer debut effect where yeah. Lauer has to debut in in Coors Field and Ronald Acuna gets to debut against the Twins as a hitter and Acuna of course he has not only hit home runs but the uh, the home run he hit it was good look it, it was a good clean <laughs> hard hit home run against one of the worst cutters you are ever going to see in your life thrown by Homer Bailey I mean you I think whenever whenever a batter hits a pitch that's hit for a home run. The broadcast, you know, the, the margins are so small. Maybe the broadcasters aren't paying that much attention. And they're going to say, well, he just made one mistake. He just grooved one. Now, mm-hmm. Fernando Rodney blew a save against the Yankees. Now, part of that was Miguel Sano's fault. But this was Thursday. The Twins lost another game. We'll talk about them later, probably, because they lose <laughs> a lot. But Fernando Rodney blew his third consecutive save because Gary Sanchez hit a three-run home run off of him. And the pitch was a 96.5-mile-per-hour fastball inside off the plate. And Sanchez Uh had never hit a home run against a pitch like that before. But he just flew open, and he smacked it down the line. And the way, because it's Fernando Rodney, and people love to talk garbage about Fernando Rodney, they say, well, Rodney shouldn't have grooved the fastball. He didn't. He threw a very good fastball, a very difficult fastball to hit out of the park. But Sanchez still got it. Sometimes that happens even to Fernando Rodney. Homer mm-hmm. Bailey does not have that to fall back on. Homer Bailey <laughs> did not throw a quality cutter. It was, you know, average cutter, mile per hour, like just over the very... If you looked at all home runs plotted in the season in the strike zone, and you tried to find one that's like, what's the most grooved pitch that was hit for a home run? <laughs> Acuna got it. He didn't make yeah. a mistake. He, it's one of those home runs that I think it looks harder than it seems like it actually was because you know uh-huh. it looked like he hit the ball 115 miles per hour i think it was like 104 yes. something like that but it doesn't matter he got it out of the way whatever pressure is out of the way and it's amazing 
how much more exciting the Braves lineup looks now with Ronald Acuna yeah. instead of Preston Tucker. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of teams like that that are exciting in some way. Maybe they're not necessarily good. I mean, the Braves have been pretty good. It's possible that they will continue to be decent. But even if it's like the White Sox, for instance, who are not good and have not been good and will not be good this year, but even they have like Yoan Moncada, who is exciting and good and interesting and so that's uh, kind of comes back to our our old argument about whether rebuilding slash tanking is actually bad for spectators and for fans because you do get to see guys like this and they're not finished products they're not polished they're not their final highly evolved forms but you get to see glimmers of that talent and you get to then daydream about what they'll look like with another 500,000 plate appearances of experience and so I think that sort of thing is exciting and and you're right like you know a third of the Braves lineup now is like the future of the Braves and then there are also other pretty good hitters in that lineup so yeah it's a kind of a fun team to watch now speaking I guess of I don't the Braves are overachieving you could say but speaking of teams that maybe weren't expected to be in the hunt that you know it's April 27th but they're <laughs> they're around uh Ken Rosenthal had an article that he wrote and was published on Thursday the thesis here was that the A's could be zigging where other teams are zagging I think that's a little I don't know overwrought I think the A's mm-hmm. are just playing half in baseball yeah. we've but, written that article several times yeah. right the, they were yeah. they were zigging to fly ball hitters right before the rest of the league was doing that supposedly back when they were last good several years ago but maybe there was truth to that i don't know anyway what team in baseball is doing the least zigging where others are zagging because everyone's <laughs> trying who's just zagging i think it's the reds yeah <laughs> the reds the reds are just grooving everything in every possible way so <laughs> and yet their pitching staff war is definitely zigging where others <laughs> yes, are zagging but anyway the uh, the idea that Cousin Rosenthal wrote about, now I think it's, it's accurate, that the A's are aiming to be in the middle. They're obviously not as good as the Astros, the Indians, the Red Sox, the Yankees, maybe even the fifth team in the American League, maybe the Angels. They're obviously not an elite team, but they're also not a cellar dweller. They're not the Royals or the White Sox or the Tigers, the Orioles <laughs> or the Rangers and all these other bad teams. They're just trying to be, you know, kind of like a 500 team. And there's a lot to like about the A's as they're built and as uh, as their farm system is constructed. So I don't think that there was anything that was inaccurate about the article. The A's are a fringe contender, even though they're without A.J. Puck and Jarrell Cotton and, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, probably going to be others as well. But what's what struck me is that it's not just the A's that are doing this or have been doing this. I think, and we've talked about this before, I think that the Pirates, the A's, and the Rays have sort of been doing this for a while. It mm-hmm. seems like they, they don't want to tank tear it all the way down maybe they believe that they can't sustain that model with their fan bases but they also clearly can't spend to be at the at the upper tier of of resource output this is a Mm -hmm. weird way to put it but anyway (laughs) these teams are are always trying to be around 500 and if they have an unlucky season then they win 72 games and if they have a lucky season they win 90 games or in the pirates case what was it 98 or something where everything just came together and then they Mm -hmm. lost in the playoffs but it's interesting because we came into the season and I think maybe the A's had a little bit of dark horse wildcard support. Maybe that was only from me, but people figured the Rays would be awful and people figured the Pirates would take a huge step back. And And the Rays are on a, a winning streak. They're still not 500, but they've won six in a row, which is very impressive. They have, over the last five games, they have gained five games of separation between them and the Orioles. But anyway... You look at the Rays, you look at the A's and the Pirates, and combined, they are 37 and 36. They are exactly as they are trying to be. Mm-hmm. So I know that 
When people talk about what do you root for as a writer, we root for things to support the things that we've written. You know, we end up <laughs> yeah. being stubborn like that. And so I have taken to wanting the Rays to be fine because I've written about how the Rays should be fine, even though since then they've lost like three pitchers to elbow injuries. <laughs> but it makes me happy to see the Rays sort of back in the hunt because when they were four and 13, you figure, well, that was it. Mm-hmm. It's over. But they are approaching 500. The A's are above 500 and the Pirates are above 500. So, mm-hmm. you know, this means only so much considering the Nationals are 11 and 14, the Cubs are 12 and 10, and the Dodgers are 11 and 12. So who knows what the significance is. But the teams that are aiming for the middle, it's uh, it's more than just Oakland. And I think the three of them, if we can agree that these are the three of them, they are mm-hmm. succeeding right now. Yeah. By the way, I think my colleague at the Ringer, Zach Cram, noted this the other day. The A's have the highest team weighted runs created plus since last All-Star break. They've been the best hitting team in baseball since July, you know, mid-July last year. I mean, that's that's long enough now that it sort of means something. And of course, they played pretty well down the stretch last season and they turned into a team. It's kind of like we were talking about with the Braves on the last episode where they were built around pitching and then suddenly now they have this really strong core of position players. That same sort of thing happened with the A's where I think people were somewhat high on them. You were somewhat high on them last spring because it looked like they had lots of pitching and maybe we were letting our Andrew Triggs fondness run (laughs) wild. I don't know, but they ended up being a good hitting team and a team with a bunch of really promising position players. Like suddenly Matt Chapman comes up and Matt Olson comes up and the team looks completely different and you have this solid foundation now of position players. So it's odd how our perceptions and maybe even the reality of a team can just completely flip like that. Yeah, right now the A's are second in baseball and WRC Plus behind only the Yankees, who are, you know, the Yankees, they're great. Yeah. The A's probably aren't going to be as good as the Yankees. But yeah, they, they hit very, very well down the stretch last season, and they didn't lose anyone from that roster. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it was always going to be able to to carry over, but this is a team where you look at it, and the A's are interesting now. I know that their pitching staff might not be interesting, although they did trade for Wilmer Font, and I will not <laughs> give up on Wilmer Font. I am delighted to see them get an opportunity. I understand he's given up five home runs to like three batters or something this season. It's something humiliating, but the A's, of course, are going to give him a chance, and he could probably, I don't know what he's going to do for them, probably long relief, but he could stand to start. But it is interesting that the A's have had a strong, a relatively strong, at least decent season so far even though they just demoted their opening day starter to triple a so <laughs> yeah kendall graveman is out i uh, i don't mm-hmm. know who the replacement is but i think it's going to be brett anderson which means wow. we've got a cahill anderson reunion <laughs> taking yeah. place in oakland this week yeah. so what is old is new again what is new is old again whatever i don't know what the expression is but I don't know what's missing. Brandon McCarthy? Yeah, I Josh, guess so. Josh Outman? <laughs> was he an A? <laughs> Whenever you have Brett Anderson as a replacement, you know that you better start lining up your Brett Anderson <laughs> replacement. So we'll see who that turns out to be. So we're maybe entering the portion of the podcast where we will talk about things that we've written about but have not yet talked about, which one of those things I wanted to mention on an earlier episode and just plum forgot, but you wrote something about Joey Gallo, and far be it for me to ignore, overlook any piece of Joey Gallo content that either of us produces because he has been, I think, one of the most fascinating players for years now. So there's a a new and improved or at least evolved Joey Gallo playing in baseball today. Yeah. 
So, I don't. Let's see what's what's happened recently. What did Gallo do yesterday? Oh, he went three for three with the walk. Perfect. So this supports my thesis. <laughs> All so right. if you think about Joey Gallo in this season, you are probably imagining the the very interesting shifts that he has faced. He yeah. has gone up there, and teams have just stacked the right side of the field against Joey Gallo because they figure he's going to pull the ball. And they do that because he has pulled the ball. <laughs> Historically, that's been his thing. He's had mm-hmm. two things. He's pulled the ball, and he's struck out, like, all the time. Like, when he's not pulling the ball, he's striking out. That's Joey Gallo. He is, like, the the three true outcomes kind of hitter in baseball. Yes. Anyway, so when Joey Gallo was a rookie, he came up, and he made contact with 53% of his swings. Now <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> some of you listening might not have a frame of reference. Maybe you don't delve into the stats as much as we do. You did just hear Ben say, that's not good while laughing. That's so not good. It's the worst in the last 16 years that we have on record of batters who have come up to the plate at least 100 times. So Joey Gallo missed with literally almost half of his swings. The average is closer to about a quarter, maybe a fifth of swings miss. Gallo, I mean, I'm not telling anyone any secrets here. Joey Gallo swung and missed yeah. a lot. He came back last season he made it. He was a he was a quality above average hitter all season last year. He was good in the first half. He was even better in the second half. So Joey Gallo sort of proved that he could work, but he still made contact with only fifty nine percent of his swings. That's very low. Clearly not so low that he couldn't manage, but it's low. Mm-hmm. So he was a pull hitter and he was a swing and miss hitter. This is Joey Gallo. Nothing too surprising here. Fast forward. Now Joey Gallo, I know his his numbers are actually a little bit worse. This season, like his slugging percentage is down, his his on base is down. I know that's true, but his uh, his stat cast numbers are just fine. If anything, they're better. And most interestingly, I guess Joey Gallo he's dropped his pull rate. So batted balls he hits to the pull third of the field. Batted balls toward right field. He's dropped it from fifty percent to thirty one percent. So Joey Gallo clearly is hitting more balls the other way. But mm-hmm. even more interesting than that. Joey Gallo is now making contact, or at least has been making contact over his first 107 plate appearances, with 70% of his swings. Yeah. So he's gone from 53 to 59 to 70. And 70 is still low. It's still below average. But there are a lot of hitters who make contact with about 70% of their swings. And there are a lot of hitters who make contact with about 65% of their swings. Joey Gallo has moved into, like, Giancarlo Stanton territory before Giancarlo Stanton was in a slump or whatever. <laughs> he's, he's just... Yeah. In regular slugging area, Joey Gallo is putting the bat on the ball. And this is vaguely reminiscent. Like, George Springer was a similar kind of prospect. He was very extreme with the swings and misses. He's become like a league average contact hitter. Chris Bryant swung and missed a bunch when he was a rookie. And his contact rate is currently above the league average. So this isn't unprecedented. But we'd never seen someone like Gallo before. Gallo was like, on the 2080 scouting scale of missing the ball, he was a... He was an 80, if that makes any sense. No one had ever been like this except for, like, pitchers. But Joey yeah. Gallo is making contact, which is unbelievable. Yeah, and if you want to go back a little bit further, this is something I think that started in spring training, right? Because I remember when I was writing an article at the very end of spring training about how three true outcomes were just up in spring training overall, I was going to write something about how the league as a whole was looking more like Joey Gallo, and then I looked up what Joey Gallo was doing, and Joey Gallo was not really looking like Joey Gallo anymore. In fact, let's see, he had 55 at-bats in spring training, and he struck out 11 times, which is not a lot for Joey Gallo, so... It started even earlier if you want to increase the sample size slightly. And I don't know, did you uh, come across articles about 
you know, intending to do this? Was this, uh, it seems like it must be a, a conscious thing because these are stats that don't fluctuate all that much in, in small samples. Yeah, I mean, all I could find, there were articles about how Joey Gala wants to become a more complete hitter. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? More contact and hitting to all fields. That's true. But I couldn't see anything that's like, here's the adjustment that he made or or whatnot. And right. I mean, you watch him and he's still, he's big boy Joey Gallo. He's still yep. trying to hit the crap out of the ball. And he still is hitting uh-huh. the crap out of the ball. He hits the ball still harder than almost anyone else in baseball. So I don't know, maybe this is just one of those things where he's going up there with a better approach a better understanding of how he's being pitched laying off certain pitches but one way or the other joey gallo is making contact and this is i know people are like wow 2018 you're drunk but like this is (laughs) this is out i never thought that we would get here i never thought it was possible (laughs) yeah that's right i don't know whether aaron judge is in the same boat or, or bucket here because he is striking out less but he's not really making any more contact he's making the same amount of contact so I don't know whether that's just a, a mirage. He's striking out. Well, it's not down that much. He was a, a 31% strikeout rate last year. He's down to 26% this year. So I guess he's more or less the, the same sort of guy. But he is walking almost as much as he has struck out so far. And we talked about him recently. He's still amazing. But in this same genre of players making improvements, I wrote about two of them in an article that is up at The Ringer today, Friday. The Angels are playing the Yankees this weekend, so I took that opportunity to write about Didi Gregorius and Andrelton Simmons, who are a natural couple of, of players to pair together. I didn't even know really their backstory. I I knew that they were from Curacao and, you know, Gregorius was born in the Netherlands, but moved to Curacao when he was young, only six. And I didn't know even, although it has been written before, that these guys were double play partners when they were six and seven years old, respectively. They were Little League teammates. They went to school together for a decade or so. So they have a a pre-existing relationship here, but... They are exciting and, and interesting to me because they have evolved as players in very similar ways. So obviously they're almost exactly the same age. They came up at almost exactly the same time. But the similarities go beyond that. They were almost identically rated as prospects and really people said the same sort of things about them as prospects. I think Simmons was always like a defensive savant and Gregorius was more of a he'll be an above average shortstop type. So he's not quite the defensive wizard that Simmons is, but these were always guys who the reports on them, whether I went back and read old baseball Americas and old baseball prospectuses, and it was always they'll field and the gloves are good and that'll get them to the majors, but they're basically bottom of the order hitters. You know, you go back and read the old Baseball America blurbs and they all sort of say the same things. Like, you know, they can put the bat on the ball, but they have no power. They don't walk. They're too aggressive. They can't handle advanced pitching on and on. And they have totally transformed themselves into all-around players. I think everyone knows what Didi is doing this year because he has been the best hitter in baseball, among qualified hitters at least. And that is somewhat surprising, but it's been a, a slow and steady improvement. And actually, we answered a listener email this winter about these two guys, I think, and how they have both made steady improvements over the past three seasons. And there's kind of an exclusive club of of people who have done what they have done or are now threatening to do. And 
I talked to both of them and I talked to Billy Epler and the Yankees assistant GM who uh, acquired Gregorius and obviously they've exceeded all expectations and they've become really good hitters and in both of their cases it's kind of a case of just laying off bad pitches and They're among the two guys with the biggest decreases in chase rate this year. They're just not lunging for pitches outside the strike zone anymore. And now they're really good. If you go back to like the beginning of last season, these two guys are like top 15 position players in all of baseball. And among shortstops, they're right there with Correa and Lindor. And obviously they were not the caliber of prospects that, that those guys were. So it's been a really impressive transformation. And these two guys were always fun to watch some of the time, but now they're fun to watch all of the time. When Didi Gregorius was a, a rookie in his first sort of full-time exposure in the majors. This is 2013. He was with the Diamondbacks. He mm-hmm. made contact a fair amount, roughly league average, and he had a, a pretty low chase rate, swung at a lot of pitches in the zone, and at the end of the day, his WRC plus was 91, which is fine. Yep. He yep. Uh, hit fly Short balls. Step, had, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Seven home runs. And what's, what's interesting is since Gregorius was a rookie, he got more and more and more aggressive as a hitter. And he never stopped making contact. He never really stopped hitting balls in the air. But now this season, his approach, this is the best his approach has ever been. I think that much is clear from the fact that he's mm-hmm. been the best hitter in baseball and he's Didi Gregorius. But yeah. he's, it's still, it looks the most like the version of a hitter he was as a rookie. But of course, one thing has changed since Didi Gregorius was a rookie, <laughs> at least we think. And that's the yeah. baseball that's been played with. And so mm-hmm. I don't know if there is a better example of a guy who's taken advantage of this era than yeah. Didi Gregorius, just in terms of having like 30 or 40 grade power that is that now is just enough. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not, we've talked about it before. It's not just a function of Yankee Stadium. He hits home runs on the road. He just, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't, he doesn't hit 450 foot mammoth highlight home runs. He just hits mm-hmm. 375 foot good enough home runs. They all, yep. they all count. And he does it a lot. He's got nine already this season. Didi Gregorius already has as many home runs as he had his first year with the Yankees when he played almost every single game. Yeah. And it's like the Simmons, at least it's easier for me to make sense of how Simmons is a good hitter now because Simmons could always hit the ball. And mm-hmm. when he was, when he was a rookie at 17 home runs, he was powerful, but the Braves wanted to coach that yeah. power swing out of him. Yeah. He had sub 300 on base percentage that year and the following year. But yeah. And when I asked him about that, he said he thought that was just a mostly a product of pitchers just not respecting his power, basically, and just throwing him lots of pitches in the strike zone, which mm-hmm. is true. So that was probably part of it. But, but yeah, he's, uh, he's not powerless in in the way that Gregorius seemed to be earlier in his career yeah I think even when Simmons was was younger he would he would run into a ball ever so often you think okay this guy mm-hmm. can this guy can swing he clearly he still hits have... the ball harder than Gregorius on average too mm-hmm. he just he doesn't hit fly balls the way that Gregorius does yeah so it, it it's delightful to see Simmons become an above average hitter because he is maybe the best defensive shortstop of his generation and so he yep. is you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, oh, we've been giving all this attention to like Francisco Lindor. Maybe Simmons is actually better because he's only 28 years old. But anyway, mm-hmm. the fact that Didi Gregorius is a good hitter now, that one <laughs> blows my mind. Yeah. No, it's it's very surprising. And, and yes, it probably is partly a, a product of the ball, but 
The ball doesn't seem to be carrying quite as well this year. Home runs are down across the league, and Didi's home runs are up. So it's not just the ball, I think. And and you wrote about him last year, and I kind of did some stuff along the same lines about just how where he hits the ball has changed since he ended up at, at Yankee Stadium and Every home run he has ever hit in his career has been to right field. He pulls every home run. He is just, you know, prototypical pull power guy. And so he is in a good park for that. And I think he's hit uh, 38 homers at Yankee Stadium as a Yankee and 25 on the road over the same span. So it's not like a massive, massive split, but there is something there. And as you noted last year, he has pulled more and more of the balls that he hits in the air he just you know doesn't really hit grounders when he pulls balls as much so he's kind of I don't know whether it's conscious or unconscious because when I asked him about it he sort of just said like he's the same guy and he always hit fly balls and now he's just bigger and older and stronger and so they're going out so I don't know whether that's what he believes or just that's what he wanted to tell me But he has changed the way that he hits the ball. He hits it in the air more often and particularly pulls it in the air more often. And I think the title of your post last year was he's in the right place at the right time. But credit to him, he has also adapted to take full advantage of those circumstances. So it's kind of, you know, you could just park adjust his numbers, I guess, and and apply the generic park adjustment that you apply to everyone. But in a way, that's not really fair, I guess, because he has tailored his game to the park in a way that not every hitter does or, or not every hitter can. Andy, now you can be me and kind of make fun of Didi Gregorius's upper power if you want. But mm-hmm. if you look at like the uh, the average exit velocity leaderboards right now, he's right. He's not. He's nowhere close to the top of the list. He's actually 138th place out of 181 yes. hitters. That's uh, with a minimum of 50 batted balls. But other names who are around him, there's like Matt Carpenter, who's been good. Corey Dickerson, mm-hmm. who's been good. Andrew Benintendi, who should be good. Cole Calhoun. Kurt Suzuki, who's, by the way, he's a really great <laughs> catcher now yeah uh, i know ozzy albies is is down here as a is it these are guys who as we've talked about so many times i guess you don't have to hit the ball 115 miles per hour it's great when you do because then you mm-hmm. get written up like franchi cordero and people love you <laughs> yeah. but if you can hit the ball 100 105 consistently you're going to be a, a really good hitter and uh mm-hmm. and that's dd gregorius against literally all odds that's dd gregorius right now yeah so it was fun for me to, to talk to them and to try to get the behind-the-scenes view of, like, what did the Yankees think they were getting when they were trading for Didi, or what did the Angels think they were getting when they traded for Simmons? And I don't think either of them necessarily forecasted this sort of breakout, but at least what they told me is that they thought that there was bounce-back potential, that they could progress, that their age and their contact ability led you to think that there was more in there and that they had projections and scouts who were saying that they could be at least above average players, if not, you know, the stars they've become. But it was really illustrated for me. I mean, I think it was Wednesday of this week, Didi hit a home run for his fourth consecutive game. He also... Had two singles and two walks, I believe. One of them was a single against the shift, a bunt. 
which we love. And then I think he also recorded the last out of the game or had the assist on the last out of the game on a beautiful barehanded charging throw, which uh, it was bang, bang, and there was a replay review. So he, he kind of did it all. And there was a, a similar game last week. I think it was last Thursday where Simmons had that double play that he started that made the rounds. It was, you know, your classic just physics-defying, unbelievable Simmons play where he dove up the middle, cut off a ball that looked almost certainly like a single, and somehow started a double play with it and flipped with his glove. He didn't even touch the ball. He flipped it with his glove to Kinsler, and uh, it was just a, a perfect feed somehow. So that play made the rounds, but that same day, he got on base four times, and he walked three times, and that's not really something you necessarily associate with him, but if anything, that may have been more valuable than the defensive play, but you know, he, he does it all now. He was always one of the more watchable players in baseball just because of the defensive highlights, but now he is doing it all, and there are only five players who have improved the way that they are on track to improve here. So if they don't completely tank for the rest of the season, they will have four consecutive seasons of at least 250 plate appearances and an improvement in each season of at least nine points of WRC+. Nine is a weird number, but nine is just the, the minimum amount that either of them has improved in any season in that span. And it's really rare for hitters to do that. So I went back, I looked at the whole modern era of baseball going back to 1901. There are only five hitters who meet those parameters who have improved by that amount in four consecutive seasons of at least 250 plate appearances. And three of them are in the Hall of Fame. It's uh, Eddie Yost, who is not in the Hall of Fame, Eno Slaughter, who is, Mickey Mantle, who is, Craig Biggio, who is, and Maglio Ordonez, who is not. But those are all good players, good hitters, and some Hall of Famers. And it's just hard to sustain that sort of improvement. And it's interesting because it, it kind of goes along the lines of what we've been talking about a lot lately with players improving themselves or being receptive to front office input. There's a similar story with Simmons where he was really struggling like late June 2016 and Billy Epler texted him and sent him some stats and some information and said, you know, here's where you're most successful when you're swinging at these pitches and not at these pitches. And Simmons really took it to heart. Like you could imagine getting a text from your GM with a bunch of stats saying, here's what you should do, essentially. I'm sure it was put very diplomatically, but still, like some players would probably read that and think, who are you? You don't know what you're talking about. I'm not going to listen to this. But Simmons took it to heart. He worked with his coaches and you can see like really perceptible improvements from almost that day forward. He's been just a, a different hitter since then. And Epler said that the Angels put a lot of effort into trying to scout players' open-mindedness, essentially, just because there's so much information out there that if you know that a player has some aptitude for learning and putting these things into effect, then it can completely transform the guy. So, you know, I think maybe in both of these cases, people underestimated just how hard they were willing to work or how receptive they would be to this sort of input. So... Fun story, fun because they have this long history and it goes back to childhood and everything, but also fun because they're just among the most fun players in baseball now, improbably. I wonder if Didi Gregorius, not the move from Simmons, but then to go right back, but I wonder if he's sort of become 
the left-handed Brian Dozier in uh-huh. terms of yeah, sort of what because you you look at Dozier and you know practically every single hit home run he's ever hit has been to left field. He's mm-hmm. been the same kind of guy, pull everything in the air, and it's one of those things that feels like it's like it should be exploitable in some way because he yeah. just doesn't hit for power the other way. And and much like Gregorius, Dozier doesn't have really, really great max power. He's kind of a barely enough kind of guy. But mm-hmm. this is also someone who has hit 155 career home runs. He stopped out at 42 before the ball was really taken off. Mm-hmm. Has gotten better almost every single season. So, yeah, I wonder if, uh, if there could be something there. And uh, when you were talking to D.D. Gregorius, of course— the most interesting thing about him is that he's literally doubled last year's WRC plus. But the other thing <laughs> is that he is swinging a lot less often, as you yeah. mentioned. It's just about not chasing the wrong pitches. But mm-hmm. did he did he say anything in terms of how he arrived at this decision? How he's been able to execute it? I pardon me, I have not read your article yet. We are podcasting. Yeah, he he said it's something that the coaches have been stressing to him. I don't know exactly why he totally embraced it this year but it is a conscious thing he wasn't like what are you talking about he he did say he is trying not to swing at those pitches and maybe it is in some cases just as simple as saying i'm not going to do that anymore i i think we've always kind of thought can plate discipline be taught and maybe it's just innate and inherent and i know billy bean said something along those lines in moneyball but There are examples of guys who you kind of point out to them that something they're doing is counterproductive and they can seem to just turn into different players almost overnight. So it is something the Yankees have been stressing to him and for whatever reason he has also taken it to heart this year. I am looking over Didi Gregorius' history in terms of his his best months when he's batted at least 50 times. So Mm -hmm. uh, over his entire career going back to 2013, Didi Gregorius, right now, in March and April of 2018, he's got a WRC plus of 219. That is <laughs> un- that is Bonzian. Didi Gregorius, yeah. Bonzian. Yep. Second best month that I can find, 143. And that was <laughs> June of 2016. And in that month, whatever, he was fine. But just nothing even close to this. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is just one way of looking over the record, seeing, well, maybe this is like the kind of fluke. Maybe he just has these months from time to time. No, Didi Gregorius does not have... These months, and if you uh, if you have talked to your satisfaction about D.D. Gregorius and Andrew Alton yes. Simmons, I would like to bring something up that I don't know if you noticed. You probably noticed this week, but something did happen this week. It's not Gregorius hitting a home run. It's not Johnny Venters making his return, although that's great. Johnny Venters mm-hmm. back in Major League Baseball. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to talk to him, but who knows? Yes. He's swamped right now with requests because he is coming back from three and a half Tommy John <laughs> surgeries. Yeah, his life, which is amazing. He came up from the minors. We were trying to be able to talk to Johnny Ventures this week. And as soon as I got in touch with the Durham Bulls, he was promoted (laughs) away from the Durham Bulls to the Major League version of the Durham Bulls, which is very exciting and also kind of annoying from our perspective. But Johnny Ventures (laughs) came up and throwing his first pitch since before Chipper Jones retired... (laughs) <laughs> he uh, he faced Chris Davis and got him out. Now, I know a lot of people have been getting Chris Davis out lately, but still, that w- must have been an incredible experience. Hopefully, we have the chance to talk to him about that soon. Yeah, I've just going back and looking at Johnny Venters' stats from before he got hurt, he was just unbelievably dominant, and that was kind of 
before there were this many relievers that had numbers that look like that. So if you kind of context adjusted, it looks even more impressive. Anyway, we won't waste all our Johnny Venters material in case we do get to to talk to him. But he was like, it was like Kimbrough and Venters, right? They were kind of lumped together as the two unhittable guys. And he was very much in that class. So I assume, I haven't looked at his stuff, but I assume that his stuff has probably not survived the three and a half Tommy John surgeries completely intact, but good for him getting back in any shape or form. It has not. Uh, <laughs> when I was watching, John Inventors, he, you know, he, he did reach the 90s, but his fastball was like 91 instead of mm-hmm. something else. So yeah. uh, also, I, I, when I wrote about John Inventors a, a month ago, it was brought to my attention that Braves fans used to lump together not only Kimbrel Inventors, but also Eric O'Flaherty was in there. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't remember Eric O'Flaherty as being that dominant, but I will say that Eric O'Flaherty in 2011, in case you had forgotten about this, he threw 73.2 innings. That's a lot for a reliever. Mm-hmm. And his ERA was 0.98 <laughs> Eric O'Flaherty. <laughs> so yeah, that uh, he belongs. Anyway, so yeah. over the past 10 games, we know the Dodgers have had a slow start. Over mm-hmm. the past 10 games, or 7-3. and three, You can look at that and say, oh, look, the Dodgers are getting better. They're, uh, they're going to mm-hmm. be back in first place in no time. And maybe they will. So they 7-3 of the past 10 games, but over the first seven of those games, they were 6-1. and one. Recently, mm-hmm. they lost a series to the Marlins. It was in Los Angeles, and not only did they lose the series to the Marlins, they uh, they won a game two to one, then they lost three to two, they lost eight to six. On Wednesday, the Dodgers and the Marlins played a particularly interesting game. Do you know that we've played a lot of Marlins quizzes on this podcast, <laughs> where I would quiz you about players who may or may not exist? <laughs> but the Marlins' starting pitcher on Wednesday was one Trevor Richards. Have you ever heard of Trevor Richards before? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> okay, 4.2 innings, one hit, no runs, 10 strikeouts. Trevor Richards, good start. Yeah. His opponent, this is a game in Los Angeles. His opponent was Clayton Kershaw. Yes. Who in five I'm, innings. I'm aware of, of what his line looked like. <laughs> yeah, not good. Yeah. Kershaw walked no. six batters in a game for the first time since, I think, 2010, when he was good, mm-hmm. but not uh, not Kershavian. Yes. Uh, second time we've said Kershavian on this podcast. But anyway, <laughs> the, I saw this. The Dodgers, who were, are supposed to be great, had arguably the best starting pitcher in baseball going at home against a pitcher no one has ever heard of yeah. on a team that's awful, full of players no one has ever heard of, and the Marlins <laughs> won. Yeah. Didn't you used to do a, a post on like the most lopsided games in a season or something using some Fangraphs odds of yes. projections? Yeah, right? The odds yeah. in this game yeah. for the Marlins... I, Maybe maybe this is lower than you'd think, but the odds of the Dodgers winning, according to Fangraphs, once the lineups were posted, taking into account home field, were 74.5%. That is a uh-huh. high rate, and this is a Dodgers team that they were starting Matt Kemp, who the projections don't really like. Mm-hmm. They don't have Justin Turner, of course, who is the best, one of the best players on the Dodgers, and mm-hmm. the Marlins did just get JT Real Muto back off the DL, so what? look... Who cares? So the Marlins are bad. The Dodgers are good. The Dodgers at home. They had Kershaw. So Dodgers lost a game where the Fangraphs game odds expected them to win three out of every four times. That is a lot. If you if you were to play this game over the course of a full season, the Dodgers would win 120 games or something like mm-hmm. that. It was just it would be absurd. Yeah. So yeah, I uh, I asked for a spreadsheet of game odds and uh, the go back to 2014, but I got rid of 2014 in the spreadsheet because I think that there was just a lot of uh, a lot of quirks in 2014, mm-hmm. things I don't really trust. But uh, anyway, this would turn out to be the fifth greatest upset since 2015. 
I was hoping it would be the first because you're always hoping it would be the first. But yes, I will say the the top two. First of all, the numbers are extreme. Last September 30th, the Indians were favored to beat the White Sox. This is a game in Cleveland, and the Indians' odds were 84.3 percent to win the game, and they <laughs> lost two to one. Now, the top two results in the spreadsheet are games from the end of last September that featured the White Sox as the road team, and they beat the Indians and the Astros in Cleveland and Houston. Now, that's meaningful, but also, last September, what were those teams playing for? Like, there, right. was, there was nothing They're resting people, probably, or, yeah. Well, I mean, if, I will say... I guess if they resting, were resting would people, be accounted for, right? Yeah. yeah uh-huh. That would be accounted for. But nevertheless, I don't care about those two because that's so late in the season. Cleveland and Houston weren't playing for anything. So mm-hmm. I can understand. There's just no motivation there. So then you go down... And on uh, last July 24th, the White oh, it's the White Sox again. They beat the Cubs in Chicago. Well, I guess, it, of course, it was in Chicago. In uh, the other Chicago, <laughs> in Wrigley Field, the White Sox beat the Cubs 3-1. to one. That's a game that the Cubs were favored to win 77.2% of the time. So that allegedly is a greater separation than the Dodgers and the Marlins. And the only other game in here... It's a uh, Dodgers-Rangers game from June of 2015 where the Rangers beat the Dodgers 5-3. to I believe I actually wrote about that game on Fangraphs <laughs> as the biggest upset of the season. That was a game in which Joey Gallo hit a home run against Clayton Kershaw. So that's bringing this all the way back. But anyway, biggest upset of this season, certainly. It's hard for me to imagine that there will be a bigger upset as this season plays out, even if these game odds... I don't know. I figure I would have given the Dodgers higher odds of beating the Marlins in this game. Maybe that's my yeah. own mistake, but nevertheless, we might have seen the biggest upset of the season. I nearly wrote about it, but then I didn't. So it's here <laughs> instead. All right. Yeah. You got the information out one way or another. All right. Well, you have just a couple minutes before you are scheduled to go from chatting with me to chatting with Fangraphs readers and people named Bork. So in the two minutes that we have, can you tell me about Gerard Dyson and his bases loaded bunt? Gerard Dyson! He bunted with the bases. Okay, so, man, I have to bring this all back to my head. So, <laughs> on uh, on Thursday, Gerard Dyson hit a home run. That was the second home run in three games, which is, uh, wow, Gerard Dyson, he's got more home runs than Jose Altuve. That's weird. But yeah. I was uh, it was a Facebook broadcast of the game, so I wasn't watching it because why? Uh, but I watched <laughs> the video clip that was on the uh, MLB game day page. And at the end of the video clip, one of the horrible announcers, his voice cracked as he said, and yesterday he bunted with the bases juiced. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? Because <laughs> I hadn't heard of this otherwise. So I looked at Wednesday, and in the fourth inning, Gerard Dyson came up in the uh, with the bases loaded, nobody out, facing Jake Arrieta. Bases loaded. Yeah. And he put down a bunt. Gerard Dyson huh. put down a bunt. Arietta, uh got to the ball and flipped the ball home for the force play before the run could <laughs> score. So it didn't work. And then Straight up sacrifice or not like a squeeze or bunting for a hit really at all? It was not a... <sighs> It was not a suicide squeeze because uh, A.J. Pollock was on third and he did not sprint immediately. Uh, mm-hmm. It looked like Dyson was just trying to catch the defense by surprise. Maybe he would be out, but it looked like he was bunting for a hit. This is the second time actually Gerard Dyson has done this in his career. First time mm-hmm. was a similar looking bunt and it succeeded. He got a single. This time, not successful. Arietta threw uh, Pollock out at home. The reason everyone has heard of the squeeze play, whether it's the safety squeeze or the suicide squeeze, but the reason you don't see the squeeze with the bases loaded is because there's a force. There's a force at every base. And with uh, a regular squeeze, then you have to apply a tag as well. Tag increases the degree of difficulty, makes it more likely the runner can be safe. So uh, I was very curious about bases loaded bunts, so I went back to 1998 using the Baseball Reference Play Index. Uh, I like to look at the 30-team era. And since then, I could find 
Uh, in the regular season, I could find 114 bases loaded bunts. However, 52 of those were by pitchers, and I don't care. Mm -hmm. Those pitchers are terrible. So there were 62 position player bunts with the bases loaded in the regular season over the past 20 years and change. Adam Everett is the leader. He's got three of them. He was bad. Uh, Gerard Dyson is one of five other players who have two bases loaded bunts. And on balance, the, the 62 position player bunts have led directly to 45 runs scoring, which seems pretty good. And there, mm -hmm. they had a net positive win probability added. And of course, on average, they are all bad hitters who were trying to do this, which makes sense. Like Nori Aoki tried it once, Jason Worth tried it once, Ichiro tried it once. It's not like it's only the domain of bad hitters trying this, but mostly bad hitters. And I was, I was just curious to see how often this happens. And the answer is it does not happen very much. And it turns out maybe you shouldn't bunt against one of the best defensive pitchers in baseball. But <laughs> Arietta still, when Arietta had to flip the ball to home, he was midair. He had to dive and shuffle the ball in a very uncomfortable position. So it uh, it very nearly worked. Bases loaded, mm -hmm. but love it. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, we will end there. And uh, lots of exciting stuff to watch this weekend, including the Diamondbacks going for their ninth consecutive series win to start the season. Sort of a fun fact that uh, they're the first team to have eight since the 2001 Mariners, who I'm sure you were watching achieve that. And I guess it's kind of it's one of those to start the season facts where you know ultimately it doesn't really matter whether you're just starting the season or doing that at any other point in the season but it's probably pretty impressive either way I don't know the Mariners ended up winning nine series in a row so the Diamondbacks can tie and uh, we'll have to talk about what it was like to watch the 2001 Mariners at some point in the future because that must have been fun it probably would have been fun for people who could watch them regularly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Were you in San Diego at the time? Or I was in just... San Diego. Oh, well. Oh, well then. <laughs> My greatest exposure to that team was watching them play the Yankees in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, that didn't last that long. All right. Well, we will end there. One more quick note, by the way, Jeff mentioned earlier in the episode that we might talk about the Twins and how terrible they have been against the Yankees. We didn't actually get to that, but I will share some stats. These were emailed into us by listener Matt. I have not verified them, but it looks like he put a lot of care into amassing them, and they certainly sound right and sound like a, a lot of Twins fun facts or unfun facts, depending on your perspective, about the Twins' performance against the Yankees going back to 2002. So since the start of 2002, the Twins have played the Yankees 113 times in the regular season. This is Matt's email now. They are 31 and 82 over that span. That's a 274 winning percentage in 113 games. Matt says it gets better. Overall, the Twins are a 499 winning percentage team against the entire major leagues over that stretch and 509 against everyone other than the Yankees. So thinking about it from a regular season perspective, they are an 82 win team across 16 plus seasons against everyone other than the Yankees. Against the Yankees, they are a 44 win team. And Matt continues in the playoffs, the Yankees have eliminated the Twins five times in that stretch. I'm sure I don't have to remind any Minnesota fans who are listening. The Twins record in the playoffs against the Yankees 2 and 13. So I guess that brings the the cumulative record to 33 and 95. Oof. 
And here's one more note from Matt. What makes what I already sent you even more remarkable is that the Twins are 17 and 49. That's a 258 winning percentage against the Yankees in seasons when they were an above 500 team. In other words, when the Twins were actually good, they did even worse against the Yankees. This is something that people have been monitoring for some time. There was a Fangrass post on this in 2011. That's how long this has been a thing. It's kind of incredible. I don't know what it means. I don't think it means much of anything. I'm sure we could calculate the odds of this happening, and they're probably pretty remote. But obviously the players and the manager and the front office that are there today have next to nothing to do with the team that was there in 2002. So I think it's unlikely that there's some sort of meaningful mental block here, but whatever the reason, it has been among the more fascinating flukes in the last 15 years or so of baseball history. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Join the listeners who are helping fund this thing. Five of those listeners who have recently signed up include Lucas Perea, Andrew Diaz, Michael Hunter, Jake Wilkinson, and Matt Bougie. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thank you, as always, to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And please keep your questions and comments and compliments and complaints for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. I will put in my periodic plug here for the Effectively Wild Wiki. There's a lot of progress being made, but it is falling heavily on a few shoulders. So if anyone wants to claim just an episode or two here or there, it would be a big help. Again, people are going back and just summarizing each old episode. We're going to have a database of all the listener emails that were asked, all the topics that were discussed, so it will be easier to find and reference old episodes. There's a link on the show page at Fangraphs in every episode directly to the Effectively Wild Wiki, and you can just claim an episode that does not have a synopsis yet. There's a sign-up sheet in the Facebook group file section as well. Your help is appreciated, and it's fun to just go back and click through those pages, browse these old episodes that I barely remember even participating in, and see how wrong we were about many things. So have a wonderful weekend. We will talk to you, as always, early next week. The thing that I tell you now It may not go over well Oh, it may not be thought of No way that I spell it out But you won't hear from the messenger Though I don't know about something that you don't understand You got no fear of the underdog I try you will not survive